This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Is it better? No? Yes? Worse? Worser? Okay, so... Yeah, <laughs> you don't say that later. <laughs> anyway, point being that where I come from, a uh, traffic jam is defined as a uh, four cars behind a combine going down the middle of Main Street, okay? And so when we get to the math part, the only math I have not had, I have to confess, is differential equations. I haven't had diff EQs. You have. Show off. And, um, <laughs> but what plagued my mind this whole time with, with the math and it making sense and all this and Mark backed me up on this okay um, was that we were taught you know in, in geometry in particular I think I have this right pi r squared right area of the circle is that right that just looks stupid you know what I'm saying but the point is I began to doubt that Mark University of Tennessee right Pi are not square. Pi are round. Okay? Cornbread are square. Okay? So take that to Sandia Labs and see how you can figure that one out, all right? So math doesn't always make sense, all right? I'm just saying that. Just get that out of the way. Jeez, will okay, preach it, Kim. Turn to Philippians. Chapter 1, we're going to continue on there. Let me ask you something. If I invited you, or you were invited, uh, on a, a vacation, and I gave you the description of where you were going to go, and uh, it basically was a, a town about the size of Santa Fe, okay, 88, 89,000 peeps, uh, has a university, university town, um, Major industry is uh, light, textiles, uh, glass, uh, engineering firms, several engineering firms there, um, pharmaceutical manufacturer there. Would you go? Doesn't sound terribly exciting, like, woohoo, let's take the kids there. What if I told you it had a port? It's a port city. Okay, that brightened it up a little bit. Maybe a beach. I can guarantee it doesn't have a beach like what you think. But it has a port. Shipping industry there. Would you go? What if I told you it was in the Tuscany region of Italy? Ooh, yeah, now we, Rob Kennedy's in. Okay. <laughs> that should make you want to go right there, right? Um, yeah, it gets a little bit more enticing, doesn't it, as you get more details. So the question is, would you go? Well, a lot of people would say, yeah, but what if I told you we were going to go see this? You know what that is? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You got it. Math. Right there. Math. Okay. 
Boy, I tell you what, the, that was perfect, you know? Gary got it, I got it. Um, the Leaning Tower of Pisa, not pizza, okay? Um, I always thought that'd be a great name for a pizza place, though, you know? Leaning Tower of Pizza. You know, you know, half of the pizza is a little bit higher than the other. All the chairs you sit down in, everybody's like this. I think it'd be great. Leaning Tower of Pisa, okay, it's in Porta de Pisa, Pisa, Italy. Uh, you'd probably go. Uh, this thing was, it was built a long time ago. It was 185 feet tall, and it lists, lists at 4 degrees. At 185 feet tall, 4 degree list is 17 feet. This thing is leaning 17 feet. Uh, from the top. And can't you imagine after it was the church, you know, that hired these two architects. I don't think they got a job after that. But the point was that uh, they had one job. <laughs> Build us a tower that's straight up and down. Right? Can you do that? And apparently, oh, yes, we can do that. <laughs> oh, huh. So anyway, they, they build this tower, and uh, it begins to lean. What did they really get out of it? Well, at face value, it was a huge architectural disaster. But can I tell you, there's a little more to it than that. Admittedly, it's my personal opinion, that was unplanned. But the reality was that it happened. It's being constantly monitored. It has leaned as much as over 18 and a half feet, but they've shored it up. But I want you to keep that in mind as we go through this passage in Philippians today, because I think Paul is saying something in the same line as this tower. You realize that if this tower was standing straight up and down, no one would go to Pisa. There's no reason to go to Pisa except for that disaster. And if they'd torn it down, it would be a vacation in a town that has several architectural firms, light textiles, glass, and a pharmaceutical manufacturing plant and a university. The reality is what seemed to be an obstacle that people were saying, please come fix it, became an opportunity when the people in Pisa says, please come see it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. By the way, thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that your word is perfect. We thank you that your word has meaning for us today. We thank you that uh, you've gifted us with scripture that we might know you. Father, I pray that as we move through uh, your word, that uh, you would convict our hearts, you change us, Father, to your glory, and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. If you'll remember, when we started in Philippians, in the first 11 verses, we talked about the church at Philippi, and you'll remember that this was one of the, uh, it was the first uh, church that uh, was in this region, first Christian congregation in Europe, and Paul established it on his um, second missionary journey. Uh, the epistle as, as a whole uh, talks about joy, it talks about suffering, it talks about unity, um, 
And Paul is encouraging these people at Philippi. Things are not well in Philippi. So he writes the letter, and oddly enough, the letter is written from where? Do you remember? Prison. Paul's in prison, okay? But the focus of his letters is encouragement and always because of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember he was in prison and there were only three outcomes. You're either going to be let go, beat within an inch of your life, or maimed, or killed. Those were the three choices, the three outcomes for Paul. But yet he writes this encouraging letter, and in the first 11 verses, he makes it known to them, reminding them that they're saints. And we talked about that. Saints means set apart, holy. And they were because of their faith in Christ. And you'll see that in verse 1. And then he goes on to talk about, by encouraging them, saying, you've partnered with the right thing. You've partnered with the gospel. The reality is, is when you partner with the gospel in this time frame, you also partnered with the consequences of the gospel that Paul was suffering. You were an outcast. But finally he said, you know what? You're believers, you're abounding in love, and he continued to pray for that. You see that in verses 9 through 11. And he said that you're going to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The day of Christ, do you remember that? Christmas 2.0, when Christ, come back, when Christ comes back, when he comes back on the white horse, and on his robe, on his thigh, is written, King of kings, Lord of lords. This is the day of the Lord that Paul is talking about. If you want to look forward to a holiday, that's the one you want to look forward to. Holiday, by the way, I told you this before, is translated holy day. So the joke's on you, Target. All right? The reality is that this is the day that the sheep and the goats are separated. And Paul says, be encouraged. You'll be ready. You're saints. You're partnering in the gospel. Be ready and love for the day of Christ is coming. So that brings us to today's passage. And we're going to start in verse 12 and we'll work our way down through verse 18. Now, before we go very far, uh, can I make an assumption? My assumption this morning is in difficult times, your heart is on display. Is that fair enough? In difficult times, your heart is on display. And that comes in the form of one, if not two, realities. One, as you assess your circumstance within you, what do you say? How do you react to that circumstance? And then when you look around you, the second thing, you're looking at people around you that may not have the same circumstance. What's your assessment of them? Let me give you an example. You have, for whatever reason, come up with a disease. How do you react? What do you say? You go to the doctor. Here's what's wrong with you. And it's a full-blown train wreck. The second reaction is, why me? They're not sick. They're not sick. They're not sick. Those two realities come into play quickly. But then the question begins to beg overall. In those moments, which is what we're going to argue today, 
in those moments, what do others hear me say? In those moments, what do others hear you say? Collectively, in those moments, what do they hear us say? Let's look very quickly at this. Verse 12 to 14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole Imperial Guard and to all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So you know where Paul is. The obvious is where? He's in prison. Expand that a little bit. He's off the streets. He's not in the synagogue. He's not preaching on the corner. He's out of the day-to-day ministry. And can I remind you that this is not Paul's M.O. It's just not Paul. If you looked briefly at his commission. I want you to see it in the scripture. He says in Acts 26, this is Christ talking to him. He says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by me in faith. This was Paul's commission by Christ. I want you to look at Paul's ambition. It says, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This was Paul's ambition. Now, I'll bring you back to Philippians 1, verses 7, verses 12. This is Paul's position. He's in jail. He's in jail. He's not on the streets. He's not in the synagogue. So how does this add up? How do you put these things together where Christ commissions him to go out and preach the gospel? His ambition, which was to preach it, not only the gospel in places where people had never heard it before, but his position was the fact he's sitting in prison. How do you bring that together? Well, look at verse 12 again. I want you to know, brothers, church at Philippi, that what has happened to me, he's in prison, has really served to advance the gospel. This is headliner news for people in Philippi. You see, his commission, his ambition, hasn't changed. 
only his position. Do you see that? Because he says what has happened is that this has advanced the gospel. Look at verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Do you understand that whoever was chained to Paul for that day got a healthy dose of what? <laughs> of Christ. <laughs> yeah. The guy won't shut up. And the changing of the guard, how was it today? Another thing about Christ. You know, and the next guy comes in, how was it today? It was another thing about Christ. And so this goes on and on and on. But not only the imperial guard, but to all the rest of the prisoners. They heard why he was there. They heard about Christ. That was the result of Paul's imprisonment. Do you see it? In difficult times, what did they hear Paul say? They heard about Christ. And so did the rest of the prisoners. In fact, anybody within earshot heard about Christ. Well, there's a bonus round. Look at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Well, can I remind you that Paul's imprisonment was no unknown. People knew he was in prison, but that wasn't the issue for them. The issue was not the fact that Paul was sitting in a jail cell. The issue was the fact that Paul was preaching the gospel from the jail cell. And what was the result of that? It said they became, these are people on the outside now, they became more bold to speak the word without fear. The issue was never the prison. The issue was what was being said in prison, from prison. And because of that, the gospel outside of the prison, these people became bold because they heard that Paul was preaching the gospel. For Paul, in difficult times, he did not whine about his circumstance. He did not write a letter to the church at Philippi and say, Hey kids, you need to lay low. Look what happened to me. And oh, by the way, do you have a good attorney you can send? That wasn't in the letter. While he was sidelined, he never gave up speaking for Christ. He never said, woe is me, I'm done. You people at Philippi, it's on you now because I'm in prison. It's not there. In fact, it's just the opposite. It was, ne it was not about his circumstance that he wrote. It was not about the loss that everybody else thought he had. It was about the gain. And the gain was the advancement of the gospel. The entire episode is about the gain of the gospel. Can we pull our car off to the side of the road for just a second? Let me ask you something. What do people hear you say in difficult times? Doubtless, you're going to be in prison for the gospel. I can't say that with full confidence. But doubtless at this point in time that you're going to be thrown in jail for the gospel. But the point is not jail. The point is a difficult circumstance. What does that look like for you and me? What does that look like for other believers? Can you imagine believers that are imprisoned by a difficult marriage? 
Can you imagine believers that are imprisoned by a dead-end job? Can you imagine believers that are imprisoned by grief? They, they, they just can't shake. What do people hear you say? What about people that have a chronic illness? What about people that have a financial burden that they can't get rid of? What do people hear you say? What about just an imprisoned heart, imprisoned life? And they, and they come up, Pastor Grant, with this catch-all phrase that uh, my life is just an imprisonment and at, at best, at best, it stinks. How many times have you got that in counseling? What do people hear you say? Look at it again. Paul said, people, church, what's happened to me? I'm in prison, but it's advanced the gospel. Everybody around me has heard about Jesus. In fact, the people on the outside are now preaching the gospel boldly. Nothing but the gospel. Well, that was what was going on along, around Paul's life. But let's continue. Look at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that... I rejoice. Paul is looking around now. Oddly enough, Paul apparently has rivals. It's hard to imagine, but he did. I'm not sure I want to debate the man, but apparently there were some who did. There's not a lot of clarity in this statement, okay? So let me steer you away from where your mind is already drifting, all right? Now, I'm going to give it to you that I'm not sure that Paul was on these boys' Christmas card list, okay? I'm not sure that Paul had been invited to their birthday party. But can I tell you, for some unspoken reason, unspoken details, the Scripture does not say that they were rivals of Paul, all right? But now I want to set a couple things straight, and I'll, I hope that you'll see the same thing. These weren't heretics, okay? These weren't the people that Jesus warned us about. Beware of the false prophets uh, that come to you in sheep's clothing, uh, but are in, inwardly ravenous wolves. They're not those guys. In uh, chapter 3, in, in verse 2 and in 18, Paul talks about others out there. Uh, he, he calls them dogs, evildoers. He calls them enemies of Christ and the cross. That's not who these guys are. In Romans, he talks about, appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause division. That's not these guys. All right? 
These guys are not what we would see today in the prosperity gospel. Heretics, okay, that occasionally stumble across a passage and they get it right and you're going, how did you do that? These aren't the people that are preaching this progressive gospel stuff. No, that's not who these people are. So get that in your mind. At face value, these were flawed Christian preachers, but they were preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Look at verse 18. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. Do you see it? Here's where I want to reverse the scenario for you because our mind begins to wonder about these rivals of Paul. That's not what the passage is talking about. It's not about uh, their reaction to Paul. It's about Paul's reaction to them. Do you see it? Don't get out in the weeds and try to read into the scripture something that is not there. Paul is now looking around him and here's the scenario. Paul is in jail. He's limited. Those guys are not. Paul is being persecuted for Christ. Those guys are not. Do you see that? Paul uh, is sitting in a spot where he cannot get out. They're as free as a bird. But yet in verse 18, he says, what then? Let me translate that for you. In Greek, it says, what then? In English, it means, who cares? Okay, and in fact, it's emphatically written because it says, really, who stinking cares? Okay, there's a difference, right, Gary? He was falling asleep. I had to do that. (laughs) There's a difference between who cares and who stinking cares. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, who stinking cares? Read it again. Only that in every way. Whether in pretense or truth, Christ is being proclaimed. What was being proclaimed? Christ was born of a virgin. Christ lived the perfect life. Christ went to Calvary willingly and died on the cross for your sins. And he was raised on the third day and he went back to live with the Father in heaven. That was what was being preached. And Paul says, go for it. From a prison cell, he says, go for it. That was his reaction. What did they hear Paul say? Preach it, brother. I rejoice. Let's pause again. Let me ask you something. What do people hear you say in these circumstances? Doubtless, again, that you're going to be in prison. Thinking about why am I sitting here in prison and you're free. Let me change the scenario for you. As a believer, maybe you're sitting there looking around. And have you ever taken inventory of somebody else's life compared to yours? Have you ever done that? Sure you have. Just shake your head, yes, you're in church. Remember that, okay? Sure you have. And you're looking around and you're saying, you know what? Comparatively speaking, Those believers have a better paying job. I don't. That other believer has this 
hallmark marriage. How are you would work it into Princess Bride? I don't know. But yet, I'm struggling. This believer has vacationed twice this year in the Bahamas. At best, I made it to Madrid for a green chili cheeseburger. All right? Yeah. It's close. Preach it. Other believers appear to have some element of of a financial worry, and you're just getting by, and here's the big one. That other believer, their kids are just perfect. And on a good day, now listen to me, on a good day, yours are a hot mess. And you're wondering, what do you say? What are you saying at that point? Yet these same people that have the nice jobs and the hallmark marriage, financially sound, loving kids, are genuinely committed to the cause of Christ. And you sit there comparing yourself in the disaster and hot mess you're sitting in. What do you say? What do others around you hear you say? For Paul... His circumstance was imprisonment. That was a disaster. But yet it advanced the gospel. For Paul, the circumstances outside of them was they were free, he was not. He said, sick them, boys. Let me ask you again. In difficult times, it's in your head right now. In difficult times, what do people hear you say? Can we go back to Pisa for just a second? That's an architectural disaster. You can see it in your mind. Can I remind you again that it was not planned? They didn't hire the Italian Blankenship boys to put up a tower that leaned. That's a good idea. Doubtless, when that thing started to lean, that the builders were saying, oh no. Or you might have heard some Italians speak French and say other words. Pardon my French. You boys had one job, and it's leaning. But also, can I remind you that this unplanned disaster came out to be one of the world's most renowned successes in tourism. Do you know that there are six million people a year visit that place? There's no other reason to go to Pisa. I've been there. That sucker's leaning. And that's it. Okay? That's it. Okay? But six million people of us, I'm one included, went to see the thing. Okay, But had it not leaned, people wouldn't go. Had the disaster not happened, there's no reason to go to Pisa. I'm telling you. Well, they have good food, but there's no reason to go. Six million people a year spending money imported to Pisa. Can I remind you that the same is true in this passage? I'm doubting that Paul had ever planned on the disaster of imprisonment, but it happened. I'm doubting 
that Paul had planned to watch others preach while he sat in a jail cell, but it happened. I'm doubting that any of you ever set out to have a failed marriage, and if you did, you need to make an appointment with Pastor Grant today. That's just wrong. I'm doubting that you ever set out to criticize somebody else's life that seemed to be going well when yours wasn't. The issue is not the circumstance of the disaster. This issue is how you react to it. What do other people hear you say in your unpleasant, unplanned disaster? Can I remind you that initially at face value, Christ's life plan didn't seem to be the right one, especially from his disciples' point of view. Everything was unplanned. And when it came down to Calvary, their world was blown. That was the most disastrous moment they had ever experienced because they put all of their trust in him and now he's going to hang on a cross. Darkest of times. This was the end of Jesus from the disciples' point of view. And this was the band that was in the garden praying to the point of death. His soul was overwhelmed and he was sweating blood. Isaiah had already told him about it. Here's what Isaiah said in 52 through 53. Read it this afternoon. Isaiah said that people were going to be appalled at him, that he was going to be disfigured beyond any human being, that he was going to be despised, he was going to be rejected, that he would take our pain, bear our suffering, and that we would consider him punished by God. Doesn't sound like a good plan. He said that we were, he was going to be pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities, oppressed, afflicted, led to slaughter like a lamb. By oppression and judgment, he would be taken away. He'd be cut off from the land of the living. He'd be assigned to a grave with the wicked. And that it was God's will to crush him. It was God's will to cause him to suffer. And then he would be poured out unto death. And by the time he got to Calvary, everything that Isaiah said happened. At Calvary, by the time he got to Calvary, he had been betrayed, he'd been abandoned, he'd been arrested, he'd gone to a false trial, he'd gone to a false conviction, and now he'd been beaten, spat upon, ridiculed, Another criminal was let go in his place, and he was going to die. He was mocked, he was scourged, he was unrecognizable because he'd been beat so bad. And then on top of that, he was crucified. And to make it even worse, God had to turn his back on his own son. Because Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? God forsook him at that point. He had to. Jesus' difficult circumstance was my sin. You get that, right? His difficult circumstance was my damnation.
Let me ask you. Same question. What did they hear Jesus say? In his most difficult time, in the garden, he said, not my will, but yours. On the cross, get your head around this. He said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Those people are not held accountable for that sin. Why? Because Jesus said, forgive them. But then what did he tell you and I? It's finished. It's done. And the result was our salvation. Paul put it like this. And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, meaning Jesus, having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it, where? To the cross, to Christ's most difficult circumstance. And he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Out of the darkest times, day three, the resurrection. Let me change the question for you just slightly. We know what Paul said in his difficult time, don't we? The gospel. He proclaimed Christ, did he not? We know what Christ said at Calvary in his most difficult time. He says it's finished. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In fact, we even know what the angel said to the women who came to the tomb on day three. He said, don't be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. We know what they said. But can I change the question for you? Not what do people hear us say in difficult times. Let's take it one step further. What should we say? What should we say in our difficult times? When our illness, when our difficulties in life, when is it that we begin to say and proclaim the sufficiency, the supremacy, and the sustaining strength of Christ? When do we begin to say, Christ is my sufficiency, Christ is my purpose, Christ is my joy, Christ is my salvation, and I trust him, and I lean on him. And oh, by the way, when you begin to lean, and all of a sudden you find yourselves in the hands of Jesus, I'd be talking about that. What about when we take inventory of those around us, and we begin to compare ourselves What should we say? I'm a walking disaster and they're not. 
When do we begin to say, Christ is my sufficiency, Christ is my purpose, Christ is my joy unto salvation, I trust my Savior. I'm so glad that those around me are proclaiming the gospel. Let me tell you about Jesus. Again, Christ proclaimed. At the end of the day, what do those around us hear in our most difficult times? Can we say, do we say with Paul, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel? Think about that the next time your tower starts to lean. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray, God, that uh, we would not abandon your word, your grace, your mercy in our difficult times. Because, Father, out of those times, we can proclaim the gospel to your glory. Father, pray that that would be our heart. We'd ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.